welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of five books on all things cycling related, writer of all things fitness related, and lover of all things fitness and outdoors related. And I'm Peter Glassford, Molly's co-host here at the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm a kinesiologist, a professional cycling coach, and I also race mountain bikes and also Ironmans apparently this year is the challenge we've taken on. So yeah, just got back from a big run and... Uh, and it's actually pretty good. It's one of the first sort of mostly road running, flat running runs I've done that sort of felt good and I wasn't bored out of my mind. So That's good. I don't know if that ter- means I'm turning into a triathlete or what. I made sure I was wearing super short shorts and, mm. and a trucker hat. So I think I'm I'm getting that conversion. Yeah, doing pretty good. Key things are happening. Yeah, on, on my note, I've actually had more of an off week than, than Peter training-wise because of some cramping issues in my legs that were, were working out, but it seems to be, knock on wood, resolving itself. People don't uh, like when you do that with the microphone. I'm really sorry. Uh, anyway, the, the big news for me this week, though, is you might have caught that I said five books on cycling, and that's because my most recent project that I keep talking about over and over on here as it's coming soon, it's coming soon, is here. Yay! Uh, so today I just announced, well, t- it'll be yesterday by the time this goes up, turning into time continuum situation here. Anyway, uh, I just announced my... Fifth book is coming out on May 31st. It's part of a series called the Shred Girls series. Uh, this one's called Lindsay's Joyride, and it's a novel for middle grades, that like 9 to 13 year old audience, uh, trying to get sort of uh, bring bikes to a younger female audience. So think Babysitter's Club, but with BMX uh, and not set in like the late 80s. Uh, so it's been really fun to write. It's been really uh, painful to write, just uh, learning how to, you know, really hone fiction writing and stuff. But it's it's been a super fun project, and I'm really really excited. It's finally out. You can check it out at shred dash or hyphen shred hyphen girls dot com, uh, or on Facebook backslash shred hyphen girls. And someone could go from probably the Saddle Sore website. Saddle Sore Consummate Athlete.com, Saddle Sore Women.com, The Outdoor Edit.com. So if you follow any of those, you can probably find the link there if, yeah. if the hyphen dash issue is. Uh, yeah, and of course, we'll have it all in the show notes. So very exciting. I'd love for you to check it out. If you know a younger girl in your life that you wish would get on bikes or you want to get excited about bikes, uh, hopefully this will be the book that'll, you know, put her over the edge and get her riding. Uh, so enough about that. Let's talk about today's guest, uh, Steven Seiler. He's the past Dean of Health and Sports Science at the University of Agdar in Norway. I love saying that because it sounds like he's in the Golden Compass. Did you ever read those books? No, but Agdar sounds like yeah. it's out of a movie. Yeah. Um, he's also uh, the senior research consultant with the Norwegian Olympic Federation, Although, don't be fooled by all the Norway stuff. He's actually from Texas originally. Uh, He's on the executive board of directors with the European College of Sports Science. And he is passionate about exercise physiology and training adaptations, particularly for endurance training. All of that sounds very clinical, but he's been a cyclist for a lot of his life. He's really loves rowing and you've probably seen his research at least alluded to in articles. Definitely if you've done, if you're a coach or you're, you know, an interested athlete and you've read anything, basically it's, it's going to be <laughs> Ever. Like, like we had Matt, Fitz, Matt Fitzgerald did 80, 20 yep. running. So Steven Seiler, his name is associated with a lot of the polarized training, which is what basically 80, 20 is, uh, the 80, 20 running concept. Um, he, Steven's very interested in the distribution of training intensities. So the idea that he, as he looked back through the logs and different studies that have been done on elite athletes and Olympic athletes and so forth, it appeared that their training sort of clustered into the two poles. So very easy and long um, or, or very intense and, and, and short by, by definition. If it's very hard, it has to be shorter. Um, and not a lot of that time in the middle. So the middle is sort of nebulous in terms of how it gets defined, and we talk a bit about that. And and the idea that it's not necessarily any one day. We don't. I don't know if we get into that super deep, but the idea that he's talking about distribution over a year, a month, or a month, a year, a lifetime. Yeah, this isn't just about individual workouts. It's mm-hmm. about looking at everything as part of the whole. He's a really interesting guy. You always worry 
okay, I always worry when I interview academics that it's going to be something that's untranslatable and right. all in like academic speak, but he was super, super interesting and fun to chat. Yeah, very with. well spoken and definitely like he's, that's why he gets interviewed, I think, a lot too. Yeah, he's also got a great like Texan slash Norwegian Which accent. Which we talk about, the mix <laughs> of his accent for sure. I like it. But you found him through, um, not so much through his studies even, but no. sort of a, one of his more recent I guess we'll call it works, but something he just put on Twitter. Well, I will say, uh, first I have to give a shout out to our dear friend Chris Mayhew, who actually called me or called him to my attention on Twitter because Stephen had just looked at something on uh, HRV uh, apps and the new technology where you can use your fingerprint to uh, actually test HRV. So he had tweeted about that, and since we did that uh, episode back early on in the podcast with Marco Altini, who did the HRV for training app, uh, Chris thought we'd be interested. And as soon as I looked at Steven's stuff, I found that he had done this uh, thing he called, I think, the uh, endurance training hierarchy of needs, playing off of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just this, you know, pyramid. And he said it started as kind of a, not a joke, but it turned from like him just trying to illustrate a really basic point about how most of what we need is really simple training advice, and then it gets, you know, more and more specific as we... Yeah, so we dive into that, and we'll, of course, post that in the show notes. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, the idea that sort of this idea of we have to do any sort of crazy super intervals or special intervals or altitude training or Mm -hmm. carbon wheels is just, like, sort of the the pinnacle uh, in the Maslow's hierarchies that's, like, he talks about, like, it's the sex, it's the all the extra stuff, whereas, you know, the... The basic needs to survive are sort of this endurance training, the targeted, you know, high intensity. Um, He's got a great story about the carbon wheels and the bike, too, that he right. goes into yeah. that I love. So you'll have to listen for that one. Um, I will also just note uh, our apologies for the first few minutes. Uh, we were doing it on Skype from California to Norway. So in addition to having a crazy time difference, uh, we also definitely had some connectivity issues. Yeah, it drops out a little. I don't think it's a huge deal. It's not a huge deal, um, and I'm going to try to fix it in editing, Um, but if there's a couple little pauses and stuff, don't panic about it. It's not your phone going weird. It's not your podcast app, Um, and after about six minutes in, it's totally fine for the rest of it, but there's just a couple blips in the first little bit, so... Just, just a side note. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy it. And of course, as always, let us know what you think in the comments or the show notes or the reviews and all that jazz. All right, well, let's dive in. Consummate Athlete Podcast. We're here with Steven Seiler, uh, who is the... Actually, you know what? I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I was going to read from this list, but <laughs> you have so many different credentials. Uh, That's usually the better way to do it. Yeah. Just let, uh... Yeah. Well, uh, my name is Steven Seiler. I am an American expatriate. That means, you know, I I was born and raised in the States and did my training there and have a PhD from the University of Texas. Okay. But for the last 22 years, I've lived in Norway. Okay. So is it safe to say you have a Norwegian accent or is there still like a hint of Texas that I'm hearing? I probably will always have a hint of Texas, yeah. At okay. least the, the Norwegians, even when I speak Norwegians, they say, they say I have a hint of Texas. So. All right. I thought so that I, was I what I was picking up. I think I'm stuck with that. <laughs> I hear that. I live in Ontario in Canada a bunch of the time, but my, my New Jersey still still sneaks in. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so how did you end up in Norway? Well, Texans end up in Norway for one of two reasons. Either they work in the oil industry or they meet a girl girl, (laughs) or a guy. And I met met a girl. So there we uh, go. I was I was finishing up my PhD and I met a a woman who was also working in sports science. And and uh, the rest is history. Well, I was hoping that there was going to be somehow an oil background. And I was like, your background is perhaps the craziest background ever. Hello. Uh, are you still there? Oh, you want to hear? You want to hear the crazy stuff? No, yes. <laughs> no, the, the the trip to the. I mean, it's it's more complicated than that. But the the original move to Norway was was, I think, a combination of having a having just watched the Olympics in '94, uh, and had and also knowing that Norway was very good in physiology, uh, exercise physiology. They had a reputation in Scandinavia for great exercise physiology, and then. 
meeting the woman that, that opens the you know the the door to all of this as well and, and falling for her so it was kind of a, all the dominoes lined up yeah it does and seem i made like... the move and, and Nice. It does seem like a lot of the good sports science is coming out of Europe. You don't really see a ton of it in the States. Is that is that fair or is that just my bias? I think it is kind of fair. Uh, I'm trained in the States, so this is nothing against the U.S. system. But because of various pressures to find funding, uh, a lot of sports science people end up moving down health pathway. Uh, so they, in order to... Anyway, so what got you interested in sports science? Are you an athlete yourself? That's a great question. Well, my interest in sports science dates way back. I, I had, I loved two things when I was a kid. I loved sports and I loved science, but they were very separate parts of my life. Mm -hmm. and so uh, I had literally, I had a laboratory under the stairs as a 10-year-old where I had a microscope and chemistry equipment and things I'd gotten from my uncle that taught science. And, and, and I played American football and ran track and did all of those things and, and kind of assumed that these two things would never meet. And then I read a book by uh, Jim Fix. I don't know if you remember the name James Fix. He, was, uh, he, he wrote the book, uh, The Complete Book of Running, okay. way back in the 70s. And there was a chapter in the book called The Scientists of Sport. And man, when I saw that title and read that book chapter, I knew what I wanted to be. So I already at 16, I was set. I was just waiting to, you know, go study with this new thing called sports science. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so do you still do any sports or did, did you give that up for academia? Well, I've competed in, in rowing and cycling. Uh, I, I played American football, ran track and field. And, uh, but right now I'm, I'm competing in academia, I guess you could say. I'm a mm -hmm. university leader and I feel like I spend all my time uh, competing with meetings trying to turn me into a slob. But I, I do train <laughs> uh, regularly, but uh, uh, you know, my, my competitive needs are, are not quite as as high as they were when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy working with this area, and I've been I've been very lucky to be able to work with a lot of uh, both great sports scientists, but also uh, interact with a lot of great athletes. Yeah, so it's for been sure. very very rewarding. Yeah, I saw on your Twitter the other day that you were you were, there was a rowing competition the same day that the Tour of Flanders was, and right. So which which one do you watch, or do you just watch them both? I ended up, I managed to watch both actually, nice. uh, but I have a special affinity, I suppose, for rowing, uh, and, and I have a bit of a, a friendship with a physiologist at Oxford, and he works with rowing, and I've been there with him, so I, I kind of pulled for Oxford versus Cambridge, mm -hmm. and that was a lot of fun to, to be able to watch the race. Okay. Oh boy. Now, now all our listeners like Cambridge are just going to be like turning off the yes. podcast. Yeah. I, yeah. I apologize. <laughs> but you know, when you know somebody at the one institution and you don't know anybody at the other, you, mm -hmm. you kind of just pull for the ones that you at least have met. And, and it's really not any more uh, fancy than that or more involved. It's just uh, pulling for friends. Mm -hmm. I love it. Q is a life insurance company that promotes a health-conscious lifestyle through financial rewards. They've used science and data to get lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people just like you, including those who exercise four times a week through cycling, weightlifting, swimming, running, whatever consummate athlete lifestyle you're, you're undertaking. Research has shown that people who are highly active through exercise have a 22% lower cancer risk, 50% lower heart risk, and 34% lower risk of early death. Many people who exercise regularly don't realize that they can get a special rate with Health IQ if they qualify through the Health IQ quiz. Health IQ has special rates for cyclists, runners, triathletes, vegans, and other health conscious people, so you can qualify by scoring elite on quizzes for specific lifestyles. Essentially replacing BMI with waist to hip ratio for better predictors of cardiovascular disease when it comes to weightlifters and muscular builds. That's great for me. 
They also have replaced the LDL-HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for low-carb and paleo dieters, which is a better predictor of cholesterol health, and they don't take into account one incidence of family history if you're otherwise healthy. So, go over to healthiq.com slash CAPod. All lowercase. And take that quiz. Um, They have a bunch of different quizzes on the website, and the website's pretty well designed, so it's worth heading over there, checking it out, and again, using that link, healthiq.com slash C-A-P-O-D. So now, uh, rowers and cyclists, it seems like I've seen some of your research is done with cyclists. Do you like research those sports because you like them personally, or do you personally like them because it's what you're interested in researching? <laughs> it, it ends up probably being a little bit of both. I've done both, so but from a research standpoint, uh, particularly the cycling has been a function of availability of of uh, research subjects. You know, when we try to do research and try to work with well-trained people. Uh, you have to f- achieve a critical mass to find enough of them in this particular sport. And, and so cycling is extremely popular here. So we've chosen to do a, a number of studies using cyclists. Mm-hmm. In other cases, I've used cross-country skiers. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever actually used rowers in Norway, but I've been involved with studies involved with rowers. So it's kind of, you have to be opportunistic in mm-hmm. terms of... Uh, the questions that I've looked at as a scientist have really not been so much specific to the sport. They've been more universal questions about the training process. So that, that's been kind of important to me is you know not to focus on the details of which size or to use in rowing, but more what are some generalities? What are some, you know, are there some universal tendencies that, that in terms of training intensity distributions, things like that. And that's kind of what's been interesting is that we have found that independent of sport, uh, you see some very common features in the way the way the best people train. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of the best people, um, one of the big things that we talk about for the Consummate Athlete podcast is that, you know, elite and amateur athletes obviously have some different restrictions and everything. So, you know, when you're looking at your studies, you know, could you speak to sort of the difference between studying elite athletes versus studying, you know, your, your amateur and kind of casual athletes? Right. And it's very fair. Actually, there are of course differences, but I think there are really important commonalities. So, uh, obviously with the They are uh, in it to win it. They, they're not going to say that, well, my job keeps me from training enough. Or, so, so that's one of the key differences. They mm-hmm. have essentially made life choices in a period of their life that allows them to train as much as they possibly can. Uh, and the result of that is, is that we see the best athletes across the board train a lot. Um, the actual number of hours per year kind of varies depending on the sport, and, I, and there's some reasons for that. But they are training as much as they can. I think that's what you can say, whether it's a swimmer or a triathlete or a runner. Now, when you go to the, the recreational athlete, they are in a way training as much as they can, too, if mm-hmm. they're very passionate. But they are limited by the realities of jobs and families and, and things like that. So... The, the volume, obviously, is usually a lot lower. Um, but what we've seen, you know, we st- I started looking at the, the very well-trained, and, and we saw a certain intensity distribution, and you've probably heard of this 80-20 uh, distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote about that way back in 2004, and then we called it polarized and, and in 2006. And so since then, those terms have been used a lot. Uh, but it turns out that that recreational athletes almost need that uh, mindset even more uh, because w- if you're an elite athlete and you're training 20 hours a week as a cyclist, you kind of naturally distribute your training in a way that keeps you healthy. You can't train every time hard. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of a self-organization that occurs when you train that much. 
But that's not true when you're a recreational athlete. You're, if you're only training, say, six hours a week or even three or four hours a week, then obviously you, you can go out and go pretty hard every time you go out. And that's the problem because it's very easy for recreational athletes to fall into kind of a, uh, I've used the term black hole, a kind of a, um, you, you end up regressing towards a medium hard intensity mm-hmm. for almost every workout. It's the most common training mistake that's that's committed by uh, normal recreational athletes. The, the easy workouts become a bit harder than they should be, and the hard workouts don't quite measure up because they're a bit tired, and they end up in the middle. So this regression towards the mean is a great way to stagnate. And when we have applied uh, the principles of you know a polarized model to recreational athletes they get better it works for them too even though they're training much less so we we have done intervention studies on more recreational level athletes and it still works for them steven i'm wondering you know i I really do like this whole method and i think you know with the athletes i coach certainly that's the problem you know they'll hit their max heart rate i'm always amazed somehow you know when they come to me i'll look at files and you know it'll be a recovery ride they hit their max heart rate it's an endurance ride they hit (laughs) their max heart rate it's an intensity ride you know they probably don't hit their max heart rate but you know they're going hard every single day and it's you know coming from an elite background i'm just like perplexed by that um so certainly that's you know you get gains as you say by saying okay let's just like take a relaxing day here and then you know go hard and a little more structured on the harder days but what i wondered and from marco altini's uh case study which was really really neat he has all that data from his hrv app um right and and you found that interesting tweet about that here recently um and, and what i was wondering from that as far as sources of error maybe in his case study was with an elite athlete say they run really fast like olympic times do they not have more, or, or maybe even power, and cycling's a better analogy, if you have a really high threshold, that area that is easy for you is much bigger and probably includes running or you know fairly good riding pace. But if you're not very fit, you probably can't even run within, right? Like easy is basically not running. So then is it not, we would miss that maybe in the capture of the data? So I guess like yeah, I get what you're saying. The 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 bands, the intensity bands, are a bit different for the the very you know the elite level athlete with the really high capacity. Uh, yeah, their green zone or that that low intensity zone is broader, right. uh, and that's 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 part of it. But what's interesting is is you know when we have taken recreational cyclists, for example, into the lab, and these are guys that are. Uh, locally training pretty regularly, and, you know, four or five days a week. They are training for a big, some big tour races, and, you know, they're committed within the limitations of their job. So we bring them into the lab for some preliminary testing, and we do a lactate profile on them. Typical, you know, the typical stuff. Well, often, you know, we use two millimolar to four millimolar as kind of a typical threshold range. Well, a lot of these guys, they'll be at two millimolar almost before they start riding. Uh, so that they can't even, they, they're so used to training hard, it's almost like their metabolic system just starts um, turning on a, a bit of the, the, the lactate production at really low intensities. Uh, so then we, we just get them to start training much more systematically and say, all right, you know, low intensity here and then high just by restructuring the training for about four or five weeks, six weeks, we can bring them back in, and all of a sudden that lactate profile looks much more like that classic well-trained athlete. That makes a lot of sense. It doesn't was... take very many. Sorry. To re, um, you know, to recalibrate, recalibrate their their profile, and then they start to be able to do what you're saying, to be able to train low and. And uh, and then and then also do some of the hard workouts. So a lot of recreational people, because they just train so much at kind of threshold intensity, they have to you got to almost rework them uh, and 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 get them kind of re uh, almost 
what should I say, do a reset on their uh, metabolic profile. But it does happen. It's quite it's quite interesting to see when we because we, we've just collected so much data, we, we we start to see this pattern pretty regularly. That's awesome. So would that be in that case? Then it would just be very easy training with you know as as the model suggests, just a, a little bit of intensity to start, or would that be a complete like only recovery sort of pace for a few weeks? Well, I, I don't use the word recovery pace. You know, I, I don't like these these terms like trash miles, and because about you know when we really look at the data, we've got good studies. Other people have done studies. We've done studies uh, that suggest that you know just training at say sixty five percent of VO two max, or that's that'd be like seventy to seventy five percent of heart rate max. You know, putting in the hours that. Uh, induces adaptations. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about low intensity training, I'm not saying that's just recovery training so that you can do the, the stuff that actually gives you an adaptation. Low intensity training does lead to adaptations. But what often happens is you just you curtail the distance, the, the, the duration. You know, if every workout is an hour in length, then there are limits to the adaptation. So when we talk to recreational athletes and say, hey, I can only train, say, four days a week, then I'll say, okay, well, let's let's redistribute that time and let's try to at least let one of those sessions be uh, much longer but at lower intensity. So it's a developmental session. It's, it's extending the athlete's capacity but not in the intensity direction, more in the, in the duration direction. Right. Does that make sense? I think so. So... So, you know, I, I just really want, uh, I would say it's important for recreational athletes to understand that just going out on a run where they are not above their lactate threshold is not a trash mile situation. Yeah. I think we, that's, we're that's... very focused on what we're trying to achieve with each session. And so mm-hmm. for the rower or the cross-country skier, when they're at heart rate 140 or 135 and it's low intensity, you know, they're very focused on efficiency, on technique. So every workout has meaning. Every workout has specific goals, but every workout is not at high intensity. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so then the other thing I was thinking when I was talking about um, recreational versus elite athletes is, and, you know, maybe maybe you've dealt with this, but I feel like, uh, and I, I'm going to throw myself under the bus here and say media in general often, uh, you know, misinterprets or kind of misreports on studies where it's like you have 10 elite athletes that do, you know, X, Y, Z for, you know, X amount of days and, you know, Y happens. Um, right. You know. Is this bad for the general public? Are we spreading misinformation by accident, or are all of those things kind of valid and you know can be applied to the general public? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of you're, there's probably a bit of a science answer I have to give and say it depends. It depends a bit on you know the study, the the specific. Um, Conclusions they're ex- they're extracting from the data, so I don't want to I don't want to put all scientists under mm-hmm. the bus either. Uh, but there are times when we get uh, overzealous. Mm-hmm. We want to sell our results, uh, and so that's that's a danger we all have to be sensitive to that, that work with trying to convert science to practice. And I think that's one of the reasons why. I guess in in my research, I really tried to pay homage to coaches, to to the athletes themselves, and try to look at things from their perspective and, and generate hypotheses based on you know their actual behavior. Because athletes are experimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're trying to find that one percent difference that can mean the difference between gold and you know nice race seventh place. Uh, then you're going to be willing to experiment. You're going to push the limits. So the behaviors that we see from elite athletes are not random. They are the product of years of trial and error, both at the individual level, but also kind of as a collective 
uh, almost evolutionary, you know, training evolution uh, in their sport. So that's why the research that we did, often we start with descriptive studies of kind of self-organizational best practice among athletes that have unlimited time and resources to train, and then draw hypotheses from that and try to organize good studies using less well-trained subjects, because you almost never are able to do experimental studies on the very best. Mm-hmm. So usually that's the direction we've gone is, is look at the best, observe them, measure them accurately, draw some hypotheses out, and then test those hypotheses on uh, a, a bit lower athlete or a lower level subject that's, that's willing to be part of a study. You know, they're not contending for a gold medal. Uh, and then often, you know, we, we continue to try to refine and, and look at how these findings um, apply to practice under different conditions. So it, it's, uh, it's important that, you know, we're, we are cognizant of the kinds of things you talk about, that scientists have to be careful making leaps. Because, uh, you know, you want, your, you want your research to be useful. Mm-hmm. So it's easy. It's easy. It's a it's a slippery slope. But uh, uh, scientists too sometimes make too big of a jump from from experimental conditions to uh, practical. Well, and so do so do we as you know reporters sometimes, right? Like it's a much sexier headline to say that like doing this is going to change your life versus doing this changed five people's lives in very specific conditions. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the other thing is, you know, my research is not terribly sexy because it basically says that there aren't a lot of shortcuts. Yes, and I was uh, going to say, you know, we just, <laughs> we just mentioned the whole 1% thing, but that sort of, you know, leads very nicely into your hierarchy of endurance training where if you don't have that big bottom chunk, all the 1%s in the world aren't really going to... That's right. One percent of a little bitty pie is still not much of a, a, a you know, a, a victory. So it's you've got to build the base. You've got to have uh, a basic capacity before the one percent matters. You know, before the altitude camp matters or the uh, hypoxia tent or all these things that just. 40 to 50 year old men love to buy because they <laughs> I was, was going to say power. carbon deep dish wheels and aerodynamic yeah, spokes. It, it's just it, the best, the best story I remember when I was a, a student back in college, I was climbing a hill on my bike, which was a Cannondale at the time. This was in the late eighties, I guess. And uh, I was happy with my Cannondale. And then I, I came upon another fella and I, I actually, I, pulled up beside him on the hill so I, I was able to to chase him down and he had a fancy carbon bike and this was in the 80s so this was very uh, new it was a Panasonic mm-hmm. carbon frame and and uh, we ended up talking and, and he asked me well do you want to try it out and I said no I would never be able to afford it and besides I caught you anyway <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So that was, you know, that was always my thought was, is I, I was, you know, I thought as long as I train well, then I can live with the other guy having a fancier bike, you know, because he, he had a couple extra kilos around the midsection. And so uh, I decided that I would, I would save money by keeping my body weight down and let him worry about the few hundred grams on his bike weight, you know. And that's just kind of how it ends up being when you're when you in your 40s and that you're looking for shortcuts. I've been there. You're looking for magic, and it's easy to be uh, caught up in the hype, uh, you know, with with whatever the journalist throws out there or the or the media throws out there is the newest cool training method or technology, and they it almost never lives up to the hype. Mm-hmm. But what does work is the basics still. It's just the basics. Oh, I'm so glad you said that about the, the weight savings. That always cracks me up when you when you see the guys that are like, yeah, I have this like super light bike. I shaved off 100 grams. And it's like, well, I, I just cut calories by like 200 a day yeah. for the month. Yeah, and... yeah I was going to say, man, <laughs> salad, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of paying a thousand bucks extra, you know, eat eat salad for a month and you'll be there. 
Exactly. Anyway, oh, so, the cost that's, savings. That's alone. how it is. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to talk about your your hierarchy of endurance training needs because that's that was one of the first things I saw when I started looking into you more. And you told me it started with just like a kind of jokey tweet by you that turned into a giant research or, you know, um, well, it, yeah, I was just this, I was tired of all this this hype, and I had seen an interesting thing called this hype curve, which is related to technology, where whatever the newest technology is, whether it's heart rate variability or you name it, and, and uh, you you get this massive leap of of uh, expectations that oh wow, with this magical device, I'm going to train better than ever, and then you know, disillusionment follows. It's not quite as magical as you'd hoped. And at some point, maybe over time, you, you find out, well, yeah, it does. It is useful to a certain extent, but it's nothing magic about it. I have to combine it with all the basics. And, and that's very typical is, is there's a hype curve. And so I was thinking, oh, that's that's so true in training also that, that the things that matter least often get hyped up the most. Mm-hmm. And then the things that really matter, because they're not particularly sexy, and you really can't earn money off of telling somebody, hey, do the volume, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's not going to earn a personal trainer any any uh, money. So we have a tendency to, to go towards short, high-intensity solutions, towards technology. You know, it's kind of the American way. Um, but the bottom line is, is... For a thousand years, you know, getting the job done, it's still about doing the work. And and the great athletes and endurance, what's always there is they've done the work. They've got a big volume. You know, they train daily. And not just daily, the, the very best, you know, two and three times daily. There are no shortcuts to, you know, that peak performance kind of thing. And and so that kind of, I said, all right, let's let's... You know, the one thing I remember from sociology was Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, which is kind of the same thing. Is well, first you got to have food and water before you can think about sex, and then once you, you know, you you've got to make sure you're you've got the basics before you can think about other things. And and at the very top of the hierarchy, you can talk about self enlightenment and all this stuff. Well, kind of the same for training. You just got to do the basics first, and then you can start talking about periodization or, you know, uh, uh, some high-level microcycle strategy that might add a, a little a 1% gain or something. But it does not matter if you haven't done the basics first. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the, the hierarchy was all about, was trying to, first I just tweeted a, a, a triangle with the, you know, that built up or a pyramid. And then, you know, people liked it, and, and it was like a little bit of a, a hallelujah uh, kind of thing. And so then I got asked to do a presentation on this hierarchy. And I thought, presentation? I just have the one picture. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so then I had to quickly uh, turn turn the picture into a presentation. And, and it wasn't particularly difficult because the data is there. I mean, the, the and, I, and I have been doing this a while, so I... I whipped together a presentation, and and, uh, and then I ended up uh, thinking, well, you know, this is not published, but it seems like that a lot of practitioners have use for it, so I put it out on ResearchGate, um, and it's it's the most viewed article I have on ResearchGate, so obviously it, it has struck a nerve for mm-hmm. uh, a segment of the the population that's kind of in between researcher and practitioner. So I hope it's been useful. I think so. I mean, I'd say even from like a coaching standpoint, it's sort of a nice thing to be able to show athletes and sort of really simply explain the concept of like, no, like this is, this is what really matters and we can get to these points, but we, we got to get that bottom part first. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Some of the, the some of the higher order, uh, you know, if you take the hierarchy, some of the higher order practices like altitude training or heat acclimation or things like that, they also have a certain element of risk. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you need to consider risk and reward. So when we send, when we send even elite athletes to altitude camps, uh, it's a it's a cost benefit analysis that that you have to do because not all athletes respond well. 
if you have a toothache or any kind of inflammation in your body when you go to altitude, it can really be a negative result. Mm-hmm. So th- there's all these details, and the average person just probably shouldn't worry about it. They should focus again on the low-cost, high-benefit uh, uh, practice. And then, mm-hmm. and then, you know, if if all of that is done really well and they're competing in the Masters National Championships and they've got the cash and they want to do an altitude camp, then more power to them. But it's probably not going to be decisive. Yeah, it reminds me, I always come back to, are you familiar with Dan John? Uh, he's a strength coach, um, but is really well-spoken and he has a concept called uh, bus bench versus park bench sort of workouts. And he talks about how uh, most people should just spend their time on sort of park bench workouts, which is just what you're talking about. Like you're not really super concerned about, you know, the what time the bus is coming or, you know, that sort of stuff. Oh, okay. So, And then now the concept is that, yeah, what's the bus bench? In the park? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then your bus bench is like that one week or one month of the year when you're really, you know, driving it, whether that's the taper or just a little more high intensity, the sports specific sort of training you're talking about. Right. Um, and his theory was that like, it's the consistency over time and just taking care of those basics and it's not sexy. It's just, you're sitting in the park feeding the, feeding the birds or whatever you're doing. Right. And right. So. right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good analogy in Norway. They, they talk about, um, making the cake versus eating the cake uh, and, uh, making the cake is that daily grind. You're building the machine, right. uh, and eating the cake are those high intensity sessions you know you actually and the the analogy basically is you can't just eat cake you got to make the cake (laughs) so you got to have that balance right and most workouts should be about building the platform building the capacity and then every once in a while you you know you're going to do some of these workouts that extend your ability that really push you your limits Uh, and if you have that base then those are going to be better absorbed by the body, those those really tough sessions. So that's one of the things you see really well-trained athletes. It always amazes me. You know, I know physiologically that when they cross the finish line, I know they're at heart rate max, their blood lactates are high. I know that they have all those same maximal physiological outputs, but yet they just recover so darn fast. They can be smiling, you know, a minute later, and waving to the crowd and taking a victory lap. Whereas those of us who are not so well-trained, we're lying in a fetal position <laughs> on the side of the road, you know, <laughs> because we have, we just don't recover as fast. We just don't have that amazing base that they have through training two, you know, they're training twice a day, every day. They almost need a training session before the race that day. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was just watching the world championships in, in cross-country skiing and, you know, we, they interviewed the skiers and they're literally, those guys are so well-trained, they're doing morning workouts before the race that afternoon uh, because they just like to, they, they're so used to it, they need to keep their body going. Uh, so that's a bit, that's different than most of us who are training four or five days a week, you know, once a day. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. You know, they have built their machinery, mm-hmm. uh, and they absorb. In, in that way, they can absorb these high-intensity workouts. Uh, but we can learn from them. We don't go where they go completely, but we can learn from them. And what we learn is, is that hey, if I build the base, if I do those some of those longer workouts, it gives me a platform for uh, being able to do a, a better quality high-intensity session. You can do that big race this year, whether it's a gravel grinder, Grand Fondo, mountain bike marathon, or a stage race. Don't put it off or show up unprepared. Let Smart Athlete, that's Peter Glassford, help you train optimally for your goals. You are not the same as your friends or a random pro. Get a plan that fits into your life and takes your fitness and your experience into account. As a kinesiologist, professional cycling coach, and experienced rider, I have a unique balance of theoretical and practical experience that can help you reach your goals. Whether you need a simple training plan to follow or daily contact to dial in your training and adapt to your changing lifestyle and needs, 
Or maybe you just need a skill session to get ready to hop logs and shred some trails at an upcoming mountain bike race. I can help. Visit smartathlete.ca to find out more and get started. I wonder with the base and, and sort of just this, the generalized, the, the making of the cake process, um, what is your opinion, you know, with cross-country skiing, they do a lot of cross-training. Do you see, as far as sports-specific, do you think that a lot of that, that total frequency volume of training, does it have to be sports-specific, do you think, um, to get the most bang for your buck? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it, it may not need to be, like, if we take cross-country skiing, you know, they're, if they could, if they can ski, they will ski. So we have to remember that part of the reason that skiers and rowers do other modalities is just because of access. Mm-hmm. It's not because it's optimal. You know, rowers will row and skiers will ski if they have access to rowing and skiing conditions. Uh, but with global warming and, and all these things, you know, <laughs> the, rea- the reality is is that they don't have access. Even in Norway, they don't have access to snow all the time. So, yeah, they do other modalities, but they still seek uh, specificity. Uh, for example, the skiers, when they run, will tend to run more on uh, hilly terrain, They'll run slower, but they'll use they'll use the hills to moderate their workload. They they're not going to do track sessions, for example. So they're more specific. You know, they're they're always seeking specificity uh, or, or, or transfer. Or you know, if they when they they do a lot of roller skiing, for example. So there is specificity in that so-called cross training you're talking about. The, the rowers uh, the same way you know they're gonna they're not gonna go too far away from the basic muscle groups that they want to train for their sport uh, so we have to be a little bit careful how how far we take that cross training uh, idea mm-hmm. because you know runners run rowers row that's what gets you ready to to compete fair enough I think that's very valid um, the other thing i was just wondering i wanted to come back to you know suffer fests and all these trainer videos and islands of zwift and stuff are really <laughs> popular and to me it's suffer know, fest yeah you guys watch more videos than i do i'm sorry so <laughs> I, I don't i don't know all of these things oh, okay so it's like indoor cycling videos and like smart trainers and stuff so everyone's riding indoors on their bicycles watching a tv yeah. screen right we're slowly becoming right. like the movie avatar or what's the cartoon one I don't even know that Avatar was the right. No, the what's the one where they're watching the screens and stuff in the cartoons? Anyhow, everyone's watching screens and not talking to each other and riding in groups and stuff. Um, right. But to my point, the the trainer videos are very high intense, but not in the this, the way you're talking about. More like a lactate threshold, like you're working really hard or moderately hard for an hour type thing. Right. Um, and and that's becoming very big. I guess maybe more in the the Western world. Um, well, I think also your your client base and your the base of people you see a lot of the time are Canadian, and for us, like the Canadian winter means there's not a lot of riding outside options. Right. Sure. And and, and you guys, I mean, you're, you're you're zeroing in on something that's really interesting, and that is that there again back to that point I tried to make earlier, where we have a tendency to kind of regress towards the mean and ter- middle mm-hmm. intensities, and unfortunately. Uh, the fitness industry, you know, training centers, personal trainers, they all kind of push us in that same direction because if I'm a personal trainer, then there's not much point in me going and telling you, hey, you know what, the best thing for you today is a two-hour low-intensity uh, jog outside. You don't need me. Uh, that's not what the personal trainer is going to say. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, they're in the business of making money. They're in the business of making themselves useful. And personal trainers tend to be more useful under conditions where uh, the athlete or the, the, the client needs motivation. And when is that? Well, it's the high-intensity sessions. So there is a tendency for the personal trainer industry to promote, you know, a lot of high-intensity, a lot of... Uh, the newest, whatever the newest thing is. Hey, and these sessions can be great. It's just that you can't do it every day. 
Right. It, 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 the, effect, the effect tapers off really quickly and stagnation ensues. So that's one of the dangers of spinning, of, of indoor training and so forth is because of the nature of the beast. It, it is a business. They're not going to ask you to sit on the bike for three hours. They're going to try to give you a really great 45-minute workout and then get you out of there so they can bring in the next, next group. Right. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because it's very hard to do uh, on the flip side, like almost, as you say, it's all regressing to the mean because you also can't bring someone in and do like a very targeted five by two minute interval set or whatever you want to pick five by three minutes um, with three minutes, very easy recovery and like really hitting those high intensity. Like no one would come in and do that. It has to be like 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off, jump out of your seat, you know, that sort of stuff like all over the place. <laughs> Right, right, and it has to. It also needs to conform to whatever the music is. So that's important. absolutely, <laughs> of course. So <laughs> we're all guilty of that. We the music tends to drive us uh, the intensity up. So uh, anyway, so that, that's just one of the challenges. And, and I think what you one of the other things you see with really great athletes is they have such discipline. Uh, I, I have a colleague that used to work with the, the national cross-country team in Norway years ago. And at that time, one of the skiers was a guy named Bjorn Daly, who won, I guess it was eight gold medals in the Olympics. So he was uh, a big deal in the 90s. And my colleague said, you know what? I was able to run with Bjorn Daly. We could go out on, on a run and uh, run for two hours, and, and I was fine. I could keep up with him. But then I would stop, and he would run for a couple more. <laughs> so, and his point was is that the when they when Bjorn Daly or when these champions when they said, "Hey, today is a long, low intensity day," they are exceptionally uh, focused on holding the plan, planning the work, and working the plan. So they don't deviate, and and that's that discipline is one of the things you see with the, um, the elite athletes. And they have enough discipline that if they're riding easy on a bike and some, some poser or some you know, uh, <laughs> recreational runner, recreational cyclist cycles by them, they're not going to chase them. They're going to let them go because that's, you know, that's not their plan that day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of the interesting things is when we, you know, again, back to us 40-year-olds, we have a tendency to get into half-wheeling. We, we, we can't let someone run by us. And we, we are so easily sucked into a different workout than what we originally planned. Uh, elite guys are not. They, they stick to their plan. They, have, they know what they're good for. They're not going to be tested. I used to work with speed skaters in the Netherlands, and I would even try to get them to deviate from the plan just to see. I would be psyched, <laughs> and I would take off, and just to see if I could, you know, draw them out. No, they didn't fall for it. You know, they knew they could kick my ass. It wasn't <laughs> a point. So, so they didn't let me trick them into doing what they're, you know, going against the training intention of that day. If it was a long ride, then they were going to just keep it low and, and laugh at me, you know. Uh, and that, anyway, so that's something I really, I think it's important to take with us as uh, recreational athletes is plan your work, work your plan. Mm -hmm. Don't be suckered in, don't be pulled into these uh, half-wheeling contests that are so easy to get drawn into. Yeah, I'll throw uh, juniors under the bus too. Whatever the equivalent of it too. is, huh? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw <laughs> juniors under the bus too, and say that like the younger uh, elite athletes are also pretty guilty of the the half wheeling, and I've spent a bunch of time oh, with sure. them in yeah, recent they're, months. they're full of they're full of testosterone, and they want to prove themselves, and so yeah, you're definitely right, and so I think that's one of the. One of the things you'll see, again, is those juniors that take the step up to the next level are often the ones that uh, have that discipline early. Mm -hmm. They they know what they're out after, and they know when to make the cake and when to eat the cake. You know, when to, when to turn it up and when to, to keep, you know, keep the intensity where it needs to be and stick to their plan. I feel like this whole episode, I keep thinking of titles for the episode because you keep having these great one-liners and it, they just keep coming. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Do you think is do you have any other things you want to cover as far as? I think that's pretty good. I think the the last question I wanted to ask is actually just what's the coolest experiment that you've gotten to run? Like, what was the most interesting one for you personally? Oh wow, that's tough. Um, I don't know if the "cool" is the right term, but I, this, <laughs> but this, I'm not sure "cool" is ever the right term for research. But, I was trying to make science sound really rad here. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Uh, that's a good one. Um, well, it, it didn't actually ever result in very much, but but one time we we did some studies on alpine skiers, so we were measuring maximum, we were measuring oxygen consumption blood lactate, muscle biopsies on alpine skiers racing down a mountain with a VO2 system on their back and and having a punch biopsy on their thigh when they cross the finish line. That was some of the craziest research we've ever done. Uh, I don't think it actually changed alpine skiing in any reasonable way. But in terms of just the the challenge of trying to do science on a mountain at uh, minus 10 degrees C with the wind blowing and the snow in your face and that, that was kind of cool. I feel like if I was one of those skiers, I just wouldn't cross the finish line. I'd be climbing well, back yeah. up to avoid well, the they, muscle they biopsy. They the finish line before they got the biopsy. But, uh, but there's been some cool stuff. I mean, I, I've been really lucky. I've been able to test, uh, work with speed skaters that went won Olympic medals, uh, you know, rowers. So, I, man, it's just a cool – it's it's cool doing sports science. So it's all pretty cool. Do you think uh, Do you think right now we're, we're in an interesting time where we're able to capture so much data – um, and more and more, some of those devices you're talking about are becoming more and more accurate and more and more accessible, the VO2 machines and muscle oxygen and everything else. Do you see there being like a, a big wave of new data or discoveries in the next 10 years as that information from the field? Like now we're out of the lab and we can actually be in the middle of the Tour de France scene, all, the, right. all, all those metrics you just talked about. It, it, that's a really a great question because it is. We've gone from very little data. When I started my career, it was just really tough to get data uh, on the training process, on the performance process. And you, most of the studies were N is equal to six or N is equal to nine subjects, right? And now we have too much, too much data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're being paralyzed by the data. Uh, I have colleagues, for example, in the Australian Institute of Sport. I was down with the rowing national team there in 2012, and, and they were really—they had really developed some nice technologies or, uh, some years ago in, in being able to instrument the boat, and they were able to measure everything that was happening in the boat: forces, power production for each rower in an eight-man boat, and and uh, but they and they had a, probably a hundred different variables. But then they were saying, they said, you know what, we. <laughs> We've got too much data here. We've got to sort through it all. Uh, we're collecting, you know, gigabytes of data almost every day, uh, and it's it's kind of uh, it's overkill. Mm-hmm. So so we're in this new stage in in the development in terms of sports science. Going, we're going from small data or little data to big data, and we've got to break. We've got to what should I say? Turn that big data back to small data again. And what I mean by that is we have to synthesize. We have to identify what variables matter. And uh, so we're in a new phase in in sports science, as you allude to. We've got access to tremendous amounts of data, but we I'm not sure yet that it is changing practice very much. Well, maybe for the worst, because we, we're all going off on random, I guess, goose chases, trying to chase some random metric that doesn't necessarily correlate with anything. That's that's really fair. I think right now you're you're right. We're in this kind of chaotic period where uh, the dust will settle, and we'll find out that certain variables don't matter, and te- certain technologies just aren't useful, and and we'll we'll narrow the field to some useful tools. But we're in a kind of a uh, a chaotic period right now but and, and I think a lot of the good coaches they kind of they've been in the game so long that they're not easily rocked by all this it's it's the it's the more recreational athletes the the, the ones that haven't been doing this very long that 
are easily influenced. So the old the old timers are just kind of laughing. Uh, do you know, you know Dean Golich by chance? He's a cycling coach. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I do know of I know of him. I don't know him personally. He did a webinar for Training Peaks recently on interval training. I think you'd probably really at least agree with it. I, um, I don't know how much more you want to listen to about the subject. But we also had him on the podcast. I'm just going to yeah. throw that and one Dean's out there. Dean's definitely one of those. He's been in it for a long time and seen a lot of numbers and technologies and stuff. And so it was interesting seeing how he was using some of the new stuff, but how it just came back to like, you no, know, you just do the intervals and you go harder or you add more or more recovery or any sort of went through it and boggled people's minds. But it was, it was a really neat presentation. I'll send you the link and maybe you'll enjoy it or you can disregard yeah. it. I'll send it well, to you. Well, and again, back to that, that coaches have a kind of a, uh, tout, uh, I'm trying to think of the English word, but it's a, a silent knowledge. They have a, a feel uh, that's difficult to identify um, in terms of numbers, but they can look at a situation, they can look into the eyes of the athlete, they can see movements and, and, and make decisions. And you can't, you can't uh, under-evaluate that knowledge that they have from having watched performance for, you know, thousands of hours. So a lot of times what the coaches say now is that the, the technologies are confirmatory they generally confirm what they are able to see because of their uh, experience. But every once in a while, the technologies may identify something that they don't see or, or go against the grain of what they think they see. And then they, they want to understand why that's true, you know, and, and maybe, uh, you know, adjust and so forth. That was what I, what, like the national team coach for the rowers said with all this data down in Australia. He said, look, most of this data just tells me what I already, it just confirms what I already know. But every once in a while, the new data tells me something interesting. So as we, as we move forward, we'll hopefully extract what is interesting, what adds to uh, the value of the coach's eye uh, and, and, and take it, you know, put it into the toolbox. That's great. So we always like to finish up with two quick questions. One, if we wanted to sort of see books that have really influenced you and sort of read similar books, could you give us one or two sort of books that you come back to or have really influenced you? It could be anything, fiction, nonfiction, your own books, whichever. Oh, man, that's a lot of books. That's a lot of choices. <laughs> uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I, I liked uh, some of a lot of his stuff, uh, particularly, again, this issue of, of you know how we know what we know and, and thinking fast thinking slow kinds of issues have, have been interesting to me um chaos way back uh, by a guy named glick uh was interesting to me about chaos theory and uh butterfly effects because i think that really is important in, in training uh, you know you can have elite athletes that have chronicled everything they've done and win a world championship and then they try to repeat exactly the same process the next year and, and it doesn't work because you know and, and you don't know exactly why something has changed some small variation has changed so you know understanding that that small changes in the initial conditions can lead to big big differences in the outcome uh, I learned that from reading a bit about chaos theory and so forth so I think it's a good idea for sports people, sports scientists, to kind of uh, go outside their comfort zone and read read about other fields, whether it's psychology or you know whatever it might be. And sometimes you get inspired by uh, just a different way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of Gladwell's stuff. I always talk about the one he has is broken. Is it broken? Broken windows. Broken windows yeah. on the subway and how it decreased crime and stuff, and just how you'd never associate that so i'm always we're on a project right now and my one thing is just like the shoes at the door have to be lined up and i just stick to that and i don't know i feel like it makes everyone we just everything goes smoothly for i don't know that that's true i don't know but (laughs) 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 well now you're making me feel bad because i don't think my shoes are lined up at the the entry of my well if your windows aren't broken you're basically within so as long as your windows are in good shape (laughs) 
I feel like this is with apologies to Malcolm Gladwell for <laughs> probably how... bastardized it. Probably. Yeah, we, yeah, I think we've definitely taken a lot of his good work out of context now. So. Well, that's a good way to end something about science and studies mm-hmm. and stuff yeah, is just to take it out of context and make a headline. Perfect. All right, last but, question. But, <laughs> let, well, let me let me also leave by saying that another thing is for people who want to read about you know some of the good research in sports science and that. Just because something is 50 years old or 40 years old doesn't mean it's not still relevant. So some of the really good work was done long ago, but but thanks to the inter- internet age, we we tend to think that all science began around 1997. Uh, so it is worthwhile to remember that some of these classic works are, are just as useful today as they are, as they were back then. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. And a lot of them are, you can get them pretty cheap in paper copy and really study them. And sometimes they're even marked up by smart people ahead of time. So, Bonus. Yeah, so, so we, we, we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel all the time. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you see in training, it's just, it's, it's these cycles, you know, like interval training. Interval training has been going on for 70 years, uh, but it just comes up again and again as, as, as if it was rediscovered. You know? Mm-hmm. So best way, final question is, where can people follow along? You're very active on Twitter, so we'll put all your Twitter stuff there. What's your Twitter handle? What is my Twitter handle? I think it's just Steven Seiler. It's I believe not very so, fancy. yeah. Awesome. Um, any other and, places? Uh, and I, and I, I use ResearchGate, which is, I don't know if you know about ResearchGate. It's a an archive. It's kind of like social media for geek scientists. It is my favorite and, place. Yeah, so, so a lot of my... Uh, articles manuscripts and so forth are available for free there yeah we'll link to that because it's got the hierarchy yeah right and that's where a bunch of your presentations and stuff are as well yeah the presentations are kind of out on the internet you know a lot of like when i give talks a lot of times nowadays they're they're they're, uh, videoed right Uh, so yeah you can find some talks on youtube and so forth we'll link a few of those then too sure well that's great yeah I, i i i my big issue is that we make the science, uh, you know, that it, it informs practice. So you guys are one of the key links to that kind of goal is that uh, the science turns into something useful. Hooray! Well, thank you so <laughs> yes, much for giving you. us an hour of your time. I know it's very valuable and you're doing lots of awesome stuff. So thank you so much for, for sitting and talking with us. Um, all the best, I guess, in the coming months and all. The Same to you. It was a lot of fun. Good yeah. luck with your uh, your efforts to spread science and, <laughs> and uh, talk about cool stuff. All awesome. Right. Thank, Thank you, you. Stephen. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford, and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time. <laughs>